That was great. Uh, today, uh, of course, we are observing the Lord's Supper, and so uh, we are not dismissing children to promised land. So if you're relatively new to our fellowship, we want you to know that oftentimes we will dismiss the kids to a children's church moment that really disciples them in a way that's meaningful and helpful. But uh, we do value partaking of communion together enough that we make our kids put up with me once a month. Uh, and so just just so you know, that's kind of what we do around here. If you've um, been following the last few Sundays, you'll recognize that we've been in this little series on knowing the will of God, how to know the will of God. And uh, today we're going to be talking about following your conscience, which is that thing that God gives to every person that enables them to know what is right and uh, what is wrong. And I know on occasion sometimes we think maybe some people don't have a conscience. Um, it reminds me of this story about Vladimir Putin who walks into a bar and he finds out that the bartender is a genie. And so he says, okay, since you're a genie, give me something I'll regret in the morning. So the genie gives him a conscience. Uh, it's kind of, you know, it's a little take and we got people in politics. It's a little bit like the, it's a little bit like the, the, the joke about politicians. Why do they never listen to their conscience? Because nobody listens to a stranger. Uh, yeah. Okay, is that okay? Okay, is that okay? We got politics people over here. I'm sorry. Uh, but everybody has a conscience. Now, at some point, maybe people kill their conscience or they ignore their conscience or they have a seared conscience or a damaged conscience, and we'll talk about that next week. But God gives people a conscience, uh, and, uh, and, that's a, and that's a good thing. It's a, it's a, a gift from God, the, the conscience, and it runs in direction with the direction that we've been receiving over the last few weeks concerning knowing God's will. If you've been tracking with the series, you, you know we've been looking at foundational principles to knowing God's will. We've covered three so far. The first is God's will is more about who you are than where you are. The second general principle is God wants us to long for him more than we long for the answers that he might give us. He longs for us to relate to him like a means in and of himself, an end in and of himself rather than means to an end. And then number three our job is to follow God's will, not to find God's will, because if you're the wrong kind of person or you're longing or if you're using God as a means to an end, then you're not the kind of God that you're not the kind of person that God would reveal his will to anyways, because if you're the wrong person in the right place, it's all wrong. But if you're the right person, there's not a wrong place for you. He's more concerned about you following his will than finding his will. If you are somebody that's in love with Jesus, if you're somebody who's being transformed in the image of God, if, if you're somebody who just longs to follow him and you're a radically obedient person, you've got to trust that whenever you need to know what you need to know, God's going to let you know it because he wants to utilize people just like you. And in keeping with all of that general impulse of the scripture, today we're coming to the fourth major point, fourth major principle, and that is just real simple follow your conscience. And I know that we don't typically think about following our conscience as part of knowing God's will, but it, it really is. Follow your conscience. Now, in our society, on the whole, you're not going to find people, you know, on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, or saying, oh, follow your conscience. Like, no, you don't get that advice. A lot of times it's just follow your heart, which means do whatever you want to do. Uh, Robin Williams put it like this. There are no rules. Follow your heart. Or how about Paulo Duel? I love this one. Break all the rules. Be set, you know, be set apart. Ignore your head. Follow your heart. Oh, and that, you know. Now, let me just tell you. There's a reason God did not choose Paula Abdul to be a 
prophet. Because here's, here, here's, here's how the scripture puts it. I mean, when it comes to your heart, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Or how about this? This is from Jesus himself. Out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. In the Bible, no one who's ever speaking for God says, just follow your heart. In fact, I don't think you're going to find any, any teachers, public school, private school, home school, Christian school, secondary school, doesn't matter. You're not going to find any teachers that are going to say, you know, there are no rules. Or just break all the rules. Be set apart. Ignore your head. Follow your heart. Teachers don't give that advice. Parents don't give that advice. The prophets don't give that direction. Jesus doesn't give that direction. You know why? Because that's terrible direction. The heart is is incurable. The heart is deceitful above all other things. Who can know it? But the Bible does say, follow your conscience. Now, again... When people think about following God's will, they, they rarely think about the conscience because, you know, here's, here's how it comes across. I want to know God's will for my life. And, and my immediate response pastorally, and maybe this is snarky, I don't know, but I'll talk to myself like this. Okay, you want to know God's will for your life. How about knowing God's will for the next three minutes? Well, I don't want to know his will for the next three minutes because I just want to know the, how it all lays out. But if I wanted to know God's will for this morning or today, then that means like, then I would have to obey in the immediate. And I don't find that as exhilarating as just seeing the map laid out for me. Listen, if God can't trust you with little things, he can't trust you with greater things. And, and so let's start small because everything great is built on something that is small. And the small thing is following God in the moment. Follow your conscience. It's not just something that's in the way, okay? There, there's a lot of people that think the, the conscience is there to flay my fun or it's just going to inhibit me from doing what it is that I want to do really deep down inside. And, and like, I get that. Ronald Reagan, and you're going to like this, okay? Ronald Reagan and I share the same birthday. Jared knows this, okay? And I'm not bragging. I'm just saying. It's pretty cool. Anyways, uh, Ronald Reagan tells this story about this guy who sent a letter into the IRS and, and the letter said, enclosed is a check for a thousand dollars. I haven't been able, I, I did not give you all that I owed you and I haven't been able to sleep. So here's a check for a thousand dollars. And then at the end it was PS. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest that I owe you. Uh, you know, that's you know, like compromising with the conscience. But what if the conscience wasn't something that was just kind of in the way or inhibiting our fun? What if we had a more positive view of the conscience? What if we actually thought that it was an immediate way in which God could lead us in our lives? What if we looked at the conscience as a gift that was essentially divine? I think this is sort of interesting. This is a, a quote from Adam Smith. He was a Scottish philosopher and economist, and, and he said this, What can be added to the happiness of a man who is healthy, who is out of debt, and who has a clear conscience? See, it used to be healthy and wealthy and a clear conscience. Okay, yeah, wise. Well, for some reason, we don't really talk about the conscience as, as a high value. We don't want to be, we want to be debt free. We want to be wealthy, right? And we want to be healthy. How often does it come up in conversation? And I want to have a clear conscience. Not very often. But in the Bible, these are goals that biblical leaders set for themselves. For example, the Apostle Paul. 
I always strive to keep a clear conscience before God and people. And this is a goal that, that Paul says is appropriate for other people, is appropriate for Timothy, that he would hold on to faith and a good conscience. Now, what is the conscience? In, in the Bible, essentially, the conscience is presented as a, a reflection of God in the human soul. And this is insinuated in lots of different ways in places like the book of Job. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. How am I going to maintain my right standing? How am I going to always stay on the path? Here's how. My conscience will not reproach me. As long as I live, my conscience, I would say like, God's not going to reproach me. Conscience isn't going to reproach me. They're, they're, they're so, they're so interrelated that he can speak of the conscience and God in very much the same manner. Why? Because the conscience is the reflection of God in the human soul. He writes his moral law on our hearts, as we're going to see in the book of Romans. Now, let me explain the conscience to you like this, because I think this is a, a good image to keep in mind with regards to how the conscience works. I think the conscience is, is rather like a, a fire alarm. Most electric alarms, They've got an internal light that hits a, a photosensitive receptor. And as long as that internal light remains unbroken to the photosensitive receptor, the alarm remains silent. But as soon as there's smoke or there's moisture or like a little insect or something, it's, as soon as that light gets broken, the alarm goes off. In the same way, the conscience is kind of like that photosensitive receptor, the, the light of heaven or the light of Holy Spirit or the light of God's law it, 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 it's hitting us unbroken, but the moment sin comes into the picture, a little alarm goes off. Something's wrong. Now, alarm bells or the conscience screaming at us, we, we see lots of examples of this in the Scripture. But when you get right into how does the conscience function for us, the Apostle Paul likens it to a courtroom setting. He says that the activities of the conscience are, are very much like the activities in a courtroom. Uh, this is found over in Romans chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Here's what Romans tells us. Since they, and Paul here is talking about they like the Gentiles, okay, because he's already talked about the Jews who've received the written law. But the Gentiles also, like the Jews, have the, the law of God written on the heart. So, and so when he's talking here, he's talking about everybody, pagans, Christians, Jews, Muslims, people of faith, people who ha don't have any faith. Every human being, by virtue of the fact that they've been created in the image of God, has a conscience. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. They will take, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now, God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, there's a whole lot here, but let's just focus on how our conscience operates in cooperation with God. And there are five things that we see here. There's the court recorder. There's the witness. There's the uh, prosecutor. There's the defender. And then there's the judge. The court recorder receives what it is that God says. God impresses, he imprints on people's hearts his law, his nature, so that we will know as human beings right from wrong. Now, that's not in all of the details, but you see this borne out, right? I mean, you've got friends who were in the church and out of the church, and you know how you were before you were Christian and after you were Christian, and you had a conscience before you ever came to, to faith in Christ. And generally, most people will agree, generally, around the globe with what is evil. 
We differ a little bit on what evils are excusable, but in general, there's a consensus over what's right and what's wrong. That's the, that's the law of God that has been written on people's hearts. The conscience receives this as a court recorder. But then in the conscience, there's also the witness. It talks about the conscience bearing witness. In the midst of an event or the possibility of an event, there's a witness that stands up and sees the written law that is on the inner uh, heart or the, the conscience of the individual and bears witness to what actually happened or what occurred, reconciling perhaps what was done with what was written. And, of course, you can't always stay neutral. There is the prosecutor who comes in and says, See, he did this, and that doesn't match with this. And there was intent, and there's all of these accusations because your actions didn't match up or your thoughts or your words didn't match up with what you knew to be true. It's not just that you did the wrong. You did the wrong knowing it to be wrong. So the prosecutor comes and and attacks. But then there's the defender. And the defender could say, well, no, wait a second. Yeah, this happened, but, but there's something else in the written law that this does match up with. And you're saying that there was smoke, but I'm just saying, no, it was moisture. No, I'm just saying that, you know, there was a little bit too much grease, you know, coming from the bacon. There's no fire here. And so there's the defender as well as the prosecutor. But when it's all said and done, God's the judge. At at the end of the day, God is the one who makes the call and his judgments are perfect. So when you, when you see all of these things at work, you, you recognize that in many respects, the conscience is sort of sandwiched between God and God. I mean, God boundaries the conscience. Okay, on the one hand, you have God who gives the moral law. And then over here, you have God who makes the final call. And in between God who boundaries the conscience, you have this God-given ability of the conscience to bear witness, to prosecute, and to defend. Or put a little bit differently, when, not just thinking you know, horizontally, but if you're thinking vertically, John Wesley used to talk about the conscience as that thing that exists between God and people. That is to say, there's something about the conscience that, although it's a part of me, it sort of transcends me because it's through the conscience that I know right and wrong, even though I don't want the right and wrong to be right and wrong because it's incredibly inconvenient to me. So the conscience is boundary by God, and it's boundary by God. It's a... It's a divine gift to you and to me. And it needs to be treated like a gift. Now, let me show you how this kind of works out, just practically speaking. And my illustration will be different from your illustration. My story is not the same as your story, but you probably have stories that will illustrate, if you think about it, the way in which the conscience works or the way in which God works through the conscience. And so I'm going to give you a personal story. Some of you know this. Uh, Maybe you didn't come this morning expecting me to confess the worst things that I ever did in my childhood, but you're here for a treat. Okay, so here's what happened when I was younger. I was in the seventh grade. My parents gave me, as a birthday gift or a Christmas gift, I can't remember which, because my, you know, Christmas and my birthday, which happens to match up with Ronald Reagan's birthday, uh, they come so close together. Well, anyways, I got this gift, and I was in the fourth grade, and it was a Honda XR80 cross-country motorcycle. How many of y'all, when you were younger, had, you know, like a dirt bike or something? All right, that's fantastic. Now, I enjoyed it. We had property behind our house. We were kind of out in the country, about 20 acres, and and uh, I. This is before the X Games, y'all. So my my uh, hero, I suppose, the one that I wanted to emulate, Evil Knievel. 
I mean, you know, I mean, the jumpsuit was even better than Elvis's. I mean, it was amazing, you know. And, and he, you know, he could jump over a canyon or he kind of, he would try. Um, and I wanted to jump over a canyon too. And so, you know, I would jump things and do, you know, the, the tail spins and, you know, wheelies and all that kind of stuff. It was really fun. But my, my mom, even though it was my favorite gift, my second favorite gift was a shotgun. And, uh, of course, the, those gifts were my favorite, and they were also my dad's favorite gifts. Isn't that funny? But the, my mom wasn't as thrilled about the gift of a shotgun and the gift of a motorcycle as my dad was. So my dad was the gift giver, and my mom was the lawgiver. And uh, and so she said, no, don't let your fourth-grade brother Nathan ride on the back of your motorcycle. She was very clear on this. Well, my brother is very persistent and persuasive, okay? And he just begged to ride on the back of my motorcycle. And, uh, and so, you know, one day I said, sure. And I, and I kid you not, this is the first, this is the first time that I gave my brother a ride on the back of my cross-country motorcycle. And so we're, we're out and, and uh, there was this place kind of out behind our property, sort of off to the side of the back, it was sort of a dirt road, but not exactly, but you could drive a truck down it. But it was a lane. It was it was boundaried on both sides. This is not an open field. On one side, there's a steep embankment, and on the other side is this orchard, this um, orange orchard, and there's all these weeds and stuff. So what I'm saying is it's not an open field. It was just a straight path, and you couldn't veer off of it. And at the end of the path, it T-boned into a, into a dirt road. So I would have to slow down so as to turn left or to turn right because... Just right past the T-bone was a barbed wire fence. So we're going, you know, really fast because fast is more fun than slow. Okay, so we're going really fast. I don't know if y'all noticed that, but fast is more fun than slow. And so we're going really fast, and it's time for me to, you know, hit the brake so we don't run into the barbed wire fence. But my brother, who I mentioned is persuasive and stubborn and kind of like the devil, uh, he has, he has his, he, okay, that might have been an exaggeration, but he, but he had, pretty close. Anyways, he had his feet around my feet as I'm, you know, on the, on the motorcycle and I can't get to the foot brake. And I'm yelling at my brother to move his feet, but he's screaming or laughing or something. He can't hear me. And plus the, the motorcycle was really, really, really loud. And I have hearing damage now because of the motorcycle and because of the shotgun, but that's okay. I'm not bitter. But anyways, it was loud and he couldn't hear me. And so I'm trying to to get to the foot brake, but I can't. And so I have a decision to make. Am I going to use the handbrake, which if you're going full speed, that's a bad idea. Uh, Or I'm going to ditch the bike or I'm just going to go full speed into a bar bar fence. So we, I ditched the bike. We, you know, we just slid, you know, how they see it in the movies. Only I could do it better. Okay. But you know, we slid. And, uh, and my brother fell on top of me in such a way that my helmet hit the, I think this is like the cross bars of the, of the handle, the handlebars, and it broke the face mask and it broke my helmet. We were okay, but my conscience told me, uh-oh, you've done wrong. See, before the decision, your conscience speaks subtly, in the middle of the action, your conscience is very silent because 
you're not thinking anymore about whether you're going to do it or not. You're just thinking about executing the action that you've decided to make. So your conscience is generally silent in the middle of the action. But after the action, if you've done wrong, your conscience screams. So my conscience was telling me I did wrong. And not only that I did wrong, but I need to make amends. I need to make things right. I need to confess to my mom, the lawgiver. Now, my brother said, no, don't tell mom anything. But, you know, St. Ernest, you know, I told my mom. Now, somebody in the first, the first service said, now, Ernest, if your helmet had not been broken, would you have told your mom? No. Uh, no, I, I, probably, I, I probably wouldn't have. But I did tell my mom, and I did feel guilty, and I, I did come clean, and uh, it was all okay. Now, the, the interesting thing, just to finish the story, is my mom asked my brother later on, so what happened? And I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating. My brother said this. What accident? <laughs> you know, I told you, you know. That, and that's the day my, my brother lost his conscience. Uh, but anyways, that's how your conscience operates, okay? It, it's kind of quiet before the event. In the middle of it, you're not really thinking. And then after it's over, your conscience shouts. And it's shouting not only that you've done wrong, but you need to make amends. You need to do your best to make right what you've done wrong. Now you see that playing out in your own life. We see biblical examples of this. I'm going to give you one biblical example. It's not just illustrative of the way that the conscience operates, but as we go through the story, I want to make plain to you certain things that you need to be aware of in terms of why it is that you try to get around your conscience or how it is that you try to avoid your conscience in very, very clever ways because we are really, really tricky people. Okay. Uh, the, the illustration I want to direct you to is 1 Samuel chapter 24, and it's the story of David who's running away from Saul. Let me kind of set up the story. Saul is the king, and David is going to be the next king, and Saul wants to kill David because Saul knows that David is a threat to Saul's continued leadership. So David's on the run. He's out in the country, and somebody's seen where David is. The report gets back to, to Saul where, where David can be found. So Saul sees an opportunity to get rid of David. And he gets together his 3,000 soldiers, his top soldiers, not just any soldiers, the best of the best. And their intent is to go out there, hunt David down, and kill him. So Saul gets really close. He's with his soldiers. They're out in the country where David's been located. And they get really close to where David is. But Saul has to go to the bathroom. I'm not making this up, but, you know, when you got to go, you got to go. And so, you know, he stops, he gets off his horse, and he goes into this cave that serves as a public restroom. And interestingly enough, when he's in the cave, he doesn't realize that he's in exactly the same cave as David and David's men. Now, I'm not exactly sure the setup of the cave, but it would it'd be something like Saul is a little closer to the entrance than David and his men are deeper. Maybe they're down or around the corner and they're on the dark side and Saul's on the light side. But when Saul comes into the cave, he doesn't know David and his men are there. David and his men know that Saul is there. So David's men look at the circumstances of the moment and they say, okay, this is your chance, David. Here, now you can get rid of your rival. Specifically, here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 4. His friends tell David, this is the day, this is the day, the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, his peers are pressuring David to take matters into his own hands without consulting God. 
Now, I want to point out several things to you concerning the conscience and how we kind of get around the conscience and don't listen to the conscience. I, I don't know how to... If you haven't figured this out already, you need to figure this out. Let me help you figure this out. When God does work, there's a synchronicity about events. Things do work together. All things work together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. That, that you, you see things overlapping in interesting, sovereign ways oftentimes. The problem is, if we get too predictive, if we ignore the conscience too much, we can be manipulating circumstances in a way that is inappropriate. Or, or let me put it a little bit differently. If you're not listening to your conscience first and foremost, if you're not following your conscience first and foremost, you are not in a position to discern God's will through circumstances. It looks like circumstances are set up pretty well. I mean, what are the, what are the odds of David and his men being in the same cave that Saul enters into to use a bathroom? I mean, what are, I mean, you're like, really, what are the chances of that? It seems like a setup. It seems like everything's worked together, like God's just put Saul on a, on a platter, on a potty, on a platter. And you laugh because you get, no, okay, now wait a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't really seem like God does it. Like, I, this is the day that the Lord has, you know, set up for you. When Saul's going to be using the bathroom, you can go stab him in the back, just like God would have intended. Well, like, you know, when you put it like that, no, no. But we do have a tendency to force the issue, don't we? Because we want, we, we see circumstances maybe working in a way that are favorable to us. God, if you didn't want me to be with her, you wouldn't have made her so good looking. You know? Yeah, yeah, that sounds funny. But people do that. They read things into circumstances. Well, if, if God didn't want me to X, Y, and Z, then he wouldn't have put me with A, B, and C. In the middle of these things, we ignore our conscience. You can't trust circumstances, your understanding of circumstances, until first and foremost, you've consulted with God over your conscience. David ignores his conscience because of circumstances. The other thing that you see going on here, and you see that David has his choice. Here's his buddies over here saying, kill Saul. And his conscience over here is like, no, no, you better not. So what does David do? He doesn't entirely say no to his conscience, but he doesn't entirely say yes to it either. He compromises. This is another way where we avoid the conscience or skirt the conscience or ignore the conscience. We don't say no, we just don't say yes. We just kind of compromise. So David doesn't kill Saul, but he goes, as the story says, and he cuts off a, a corner of Saul's robe. Saul has, doesn't have his robe available. Saul, David sneaks up behind him in a way that Saul doesn't catch Saul's attention, just cuts off a corner of the robe, comes back to the men, and you can imagine all the guys are, you know, they're chest bumping and fist bumping and elbow bumping and high five, and it's all there in the Hebrew. Okay. okay, pang of conscience. No, I made that up. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Uh, but you can imagine they're excited because David snuck up and he did something. As soon as David gets back to the guys after he's cut off the corner of this robe, here's what the text tells us. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. The King James Version says his heart smote him. Okay. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, 
or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. David's conscience is sounding an alarm because before it spoke subtly in the middle of the activity. He's not listening. After the activity, it's screaming loudly. You should have done that. You should have done that. And, and so David is torn up inside. He's torn up, you know, the, the robe or at least a portion of the robe. And now he's tearing into his men because when it says he rebuked his men, literally in the Hebrew, honestly, literally in the Hebrew, it means he tore into his men. Everything's all torn up. So the, the conscience after everything is torn up starts screaming at you, not only that you've done wrong, but you need to make things right. Now, again, why did Saul, why did David mess up? Why did he go astray? Why did he not follow his conscience? Two reasons. Circumstances, he was interpreting in a way that served him well. His purpose is not necessarily God's. He was over-interpreting circumstances and he was compromising the people around him. That's why he ignored his conscience. Once his conscience has spoken, he has to make a decision. Am I going to continue to ignore my conscience in the darkness of the cave or am I going to follow my conscience into the light? Which means I don't care about circumstances anymore and I'm not really that concerned about compromising with anyone. I'm just going to do what's right because it's right and that's it. That's what it means to repent, by the way. If you're conscience-stricken, it's because you wanted your own way, deep down inside, and it's because you compromised in a way you should not have. To repent means, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just going to do what's right because it's right without any concern or consideration to what might happen to me or without any concern or consideration to trying to compromise and negotiate my way through this. David chooses now to follow his conscience and look at what he does. He goes out into the light and he lies on the ground face down before Saul, who you remember is out to kill David. Oh yeah. And this is the middle of 3000 warriors who are trying to take him down. If Saul was vulnerable, well, David is super vulnerable and he's made himself that way because he knows he's done wrong. And in order to make amends with God or to confess with God, sometimes it involves making amends or confessing to other people that you have wronged. Now, when David does this, he's conscience-stricken and he acts on his conscience rather than choosing to continue to ignore his conscience. Maybe, just maybe, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, well, if I follow my conscience and I do it publicly, maybe Saul would do the same. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if somebody, maybe it's a child who follows their conscience or a friend or you've got a, a co-worker and they were wanting to do the right thing, even if they knew it was going to cost a friendship, even if they knew it might cost or did cost their job, or they were just doing the right thing or speaking up in a very dangerous situation, but they weren't concerned about compromising and they weren't concerned about the circumstances. They were just going to do one thing and one thing only. They're just going to do the right thing because it's the right thing and that was it. And then they did that, and you saw that. Maybe you saw that sensitivity in their conscience in your children. What does that do to you when you know that person or you see that person? It sensitizes your own conscience too. David is in the middle of a whole lot of people who have a seared or broken or damaged conscience. Go kill the king, kill the king while he's doing his business in a cave. 
They've got very, very hard conscience, and it pulls David down. But when you're around other people who have a sensitive conscience, it can actually pull you up, at least for a moment. This is what happens to David. He lays it all out there. He's faced down in front of the king. And, and look at what happens. Here's what the text tells us. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this place, this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hands will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now, notice, just, just notice Saul's immediate response in verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Now, David uses the right words, but it's not just that. The reason there's at least a moment of peace, a moment of reconciliation, is because David makes a choice to turn the corner in the way in which he relates to his conscience. He makes a choice... To not continue to avoid or ignore his conscience in the dark, he makes a choice to follow his conscience out of the cave into the light. Now, next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the conscience, especially repairing a damaged conscience, a seared conscience, because your, your conscience can get to a place where you can't fully trust it because you've been neglecting it or ignoring it or even trying to mute it or kill it. Not all consciences can be equally trusted. That's true. Okay. It's true. Some people can't even fully trust their own conscience because they've ignored it so long. They've neglected it so long. They've damaged it so much that they're not even sure moment by moment what they ought to be doing. You can't have a damaged conscience. Your conscience has to be in the right shape and has to be in the right place. It's like a thermometer. I didn't notice this. I, I didn't, didn't know this until recently when I was doing some research for this. I got to thinking about it, kind of Googled this, and, and I found out that the National Weather Service has very strict requirements of thermometers and their placement in order for them to be registered nationally in terms of that's what the temperature is in this area. Now, you, you may have figured this out if you have, like, thermometers in your backyard or whatever. It's different in the shade than out of the shade. Your thermometer is going to give a different reading if it's close to asphalt or a building or concrete. And so the National, Work, uh, National Weather Service, they say, look, if we're going to trust your thermometer, if we're going to kind of put it on, the, on our radar or use the information, the thermometer has to be, first of all, over grass. Second, it has to be four to six feet off the ground. Second, it has to be in a white ventilated covering of sorts. And then it has number four, it has to be at least a hundred feet away from any concrete or asphalt surfaces and it has to be five hundred feet away from any buildings. 
Like, really? Now, your thermometer might be a little bit busted or might be in the wrong location, but, but here's, well, we need to fix it and address it, and we're going to address it next week. It still kind of gives you some information, okay? If you look out back and you see your thermometer says, you know, maybe it's on the fence, you know. So how many of y'all got, like, uh, you know, thermometers in, your, in, in the back of your yard? Some kind of, okay, lots of you. It says 95 degrees. Maybe it's only 90. Maybe it's 105. You can still look at it and, and you know, it's hot outside. You know, or, or it says 30 degrees. Maybe it's 35. Maybe it's 27. You don't know. But you can look at it and it still says, it's cold. Or if you're like me, I never watch the weather channel or look at thermometers. I just go outside and I'm like, okay, it's hot or cold. That's <laughs> enough for me. But some people, they follow that stuff. But your thermometer, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it still gives you kind of a reading, okay? Next week, we're going to get it cleaned up and addressed and repaired and in the right position and all the rest. But, but I don't want to overthink this. If this morning, in your conscience, you know, I need to do 180 on this thing. There's this thought or action or attitude or deed, and, and it is wrong, and your conscience is bothering you. Here's my encouragement to you. Get a clear conscience. Confess it to God. Maybe confess it to someone else. But especially this morning, because, you know, look, we are remembering the body that's broken, the blood that was shed for you. This is, the, this is the God that you come to, not just to clear your conscience, but to help you have a clear conscience. Because when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's not just that he forgives, it's that he cleanses and he, and he restores. He's that kind of a God. I've said this around here all the time, and I'm going to continue to maintain this because this is the way Jesus taught concerning the Bible. All the Bible is a revelation of God. All the Bible is, in some respect or another, pointing ultimately to Jesus. The story of David and Saul is about Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Well, look, why would you not come and lay yourself down on the ground face first before God? David did that to Saul, to Saul. And he lived. The contrast to God is Saul. Our true king is not out to kill us. He's out to restore us. He's chasing us down because he wants to hug us and embrace us. You can't come to this Lord with your sin. You shouldn't go to anybody. And it's not just that Saul is the contrast to God. It's that David is a type of Christ. Now, David violates his conscience. He cuts off a corner of the guy's robe. I mean, you know... In the grand scheme of things, that's probably as bad as putting your brother on the back of your Honda XR80 and wrecking. Probably. No, no. It's not. I mean, really. He cut off a corner of the guy's robe, and David is conscious stricken. But he falls short. He sinned. He did. And then what does he do? He comes out, and he lays himself on the ground for someone who's trying to kill him. Wait. Now, okay. Does that remind you of anybody? Jesus lays himself out on a cross for people who want to kill him, and they do. And and, and it's not that Jesus was guilty. We were guilty. And he made himself vulnerable knowing where it was going to go. He didn't just risk his life. He gave it. I mean, when you consider the kind of Lord that we have, especially as revealed in the elements, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed for you, if you can't confess your sin and come clean to this God... You can't do it for anybody. Really. So if you have something that you're dealing with, you better not harden your heart 
and say no to God in this moment. That is a dangerous thing to do. I was visiting, it's really dangerous around churches. I was uh, visiting with Alan earlier this week and we were just agreeing that one of the saddest things, especially around churches, places of Christian worship, is when you're, you're trying, you love, we, I love everybody, Alan loves everybody, we all love everybody. But then, you know, there's someone, and, and God has spoken to their heart, you need to repent. You need to stop doing that. You need to stop being that way. And the, the light of God is, is there, and the person of Jesus is obvious, and, and they're given an, an opportunity every weekend, and actually every day, to repent and to repent and repent. And they know the character and the nature of God. And then they choose not to, and they choose not to, and they choose not to. And then, when they've ignored their smoke alarm long enough, the fire consumes them and their family or their friends or their business, and there's burns over 90% of their body, and still, they're not coming around. It is a dangerous thing to say no to your conscience. And so when that person gets to me or to Alan or to you or whatever the situation is, you know at that point, I got nothing. I can't help you. You know why? Because if you can't respond to Jesus with repentance, there's nothing else that I or anyone else can give you. So in this moment, when we remember the body that was broken and the blood was shed and we do the self-examination and we think about coming clean, you better do it. And this isn't, I'm not trying to do, be all like heavy like a threat. I'm just saying that when you reject your only hope, you are hopeless. This is it. It doesn't, it, there, there's not something else that I can show you or do for you that Jesus hasn't already shown or done. So before we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, we always take a moment for silent meditation and confession. And don't you dare, don't you dare come to the table, if this is yet again, don't you dare come to the table receiving the body of Christ with one hand while doing this in God's face with the other. That is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. On the flip side, when you do come clean, and you stop rejecting your conscience in the dark and you follow your conscience into the light, there's liberation. There's restoration. There's forgiveness. There's cleansing. And the relationship that you made wrong between you and your father is made right and you understand what it's like to be a son or a daughter in right relation all over again. That The contrast couldn't be any more stark. The, what's at stake couldn't be any higher. Don't disbelieve it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to invite our, our ushers forward for the time of communion observation. But every head bowed, every eye closed as, uh, as we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper together. This is a time where you would just say, God, okay, here it is. I, I know I've, I, I need to come clean over this. Now is the time. It's not later. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's right now. Confess that sin to the Lord. And, and maybe, just maybe, you need to practically make amends with someone else. This would be a, a good time to at least start that process, determine it. 
But if you've not yet received Christ as your Savior and Lord, you might just pray to God, God, I know that I've sinned. It's not just that I did wrong. I know through my conscience that you gave me that I did the wrong, not accidentally. I did the wrong knowing to be wrong because I'm just wrong. Uh, And I, I confess that. And I know that I need forgiveness. I know I've done wrong. I also know who I can come to, and that's Jesus. He lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died. And I can trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord, the forgiver of my sins and the cleanser of my life. And so, God, right now, I don't even know all the implications. I just know I need forgiveness and I need cleansing. And I know the one and the only one to whom I can come. It's Jesus. So right now, God, I trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I turn from my sin and my selfishness and I trust in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. Thank you for saving me from my sin. In Jesus' name, amen.